0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Hi, Don Boudreau, November 29, 2016. Hi, I'm Don Boudreau, professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm here today with one of my heroes, my colleague, Dick Wagner. Uh, Dick is the Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason. He's been here since 1988. Uh, he's taught at uh, Florida State, Tulane, Virginia Tech, Auburn, UC Irvine. He earned his Ph.D. at UVA back in the mid-'60s, writing under uh, Jim Buchanan, our late colleague Jim Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1986. And uh, Dick has been for 50 years now a major contributor uh, to uh, the public finance, public choice, and Austrian economics, literature, and, and uh, although contributing now for 50 years, he's still uh, an active uh, a scholar, uh, churning out books, I think, once, about once a year, it seems, Dick. Uh, so welcome to this podcast. Uh, so let's begin with a simple t- uh, question. Uh, how do you define public choice?
2: Well, I take the standard definition of public choice just as the use of economic ideas to think about politics and political processes because the idea of the logic of economizing action is a universal quality that uh, pertains to all aspects of life, whether you're talking about business, government, or anything else.
1: And and I, I know... Uh, that when public choice began fifty or more years ago, it was controversial. But when I think about public choice, I think when you think about it, it seems just commonsensical it seems like a straightforward application of or extension of, of economics. Uh, was it controversial back in the fifties and sixties
2: There was a sense then that people were doing just sensible economics applied to politics. What was controversial was the there was resistance from the idea that you shouldn't speak about politics in the grubby kind of language of economics, that politics somehow should be elevated to some kind of higher status. And that was not something that was held by the people of Virginia or by uh, any of the people who participated in the creation of public choice. It was a much more of a set of people who were Driven to try to understand. They, they recognized the basic economizing logic that you found within political processes and sought to understand it uh, more deeply.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, what led you to specialize in, it, or what attracted you <coughs> to want to go to UVA when Buchanan and Tullock and other public choice scholars were in their heyday there?
2: Oh, that was one of those long things that long ago reminisces that. Takes me back that I was an undergraduate at the University of Southern California. And in my junior and senior years, I had come to realize that I just was a natural bookworm and liked the idea of spending my life uh, reading and writing. But I had the trouble that I liked the logic of economic theory but I liked the material that I had in my classes on political science and in my senior year first semester I had a class from a fellow named Richard Byles who had just joined the faculty from Virginia and I was talking to him about my quandary and he said well you need to read the calculus of consent because if you do that you'll see that you can go to Virginia uh, study economics, and do politics. And
1: it had just come out at that it time, That right. had just
2: come out, yes. Nine, I was in 62, and this would have been late 62 or early 63 when we had this conversation. So that's what I did, and Bylus was right. I got a nice offer there and went.
1: Okay, so you, you arrived at, in Charlottesville in 1963? That's right. Yeah, so uh, that was, when I think of great economics departments uh, in history, UVA in the mid-'60s is... On, near on the top of my, my, my list. It had Buchanan, Tulloch, Leland Yeager, Warren Nutter, Ronald Coase. So you arrived there when all of these luminaries, Coase was still there, I know.
2: Yes, yeah. I, I had Coase my first year for both semesters of history of economics.
1: So it's an open-ended question, but what, what, what was it like being in Charlottesville in 63 and 64 with these great, great scholars? Did you, did you feel that, that something special was going on?
2: No, I'm afraid not. I didn't feel anything special. I think I was too dumb to feel anything special. I, I was You're in too classes. busy as
1: a first-year graduate student.
2: Yeah. Well, as a first-year graduate, I was horribly busy. And uh, and I was certainly very interested in what I was doing, but I just thought of those all as, as as just smart people, but not as... I didn't have any recognition of a revolution of some type really in motion.
1: hmm and, and was Buchanan, uh, of course, this is long before he won the Nobel Prize, was Buchanan the luminary on the faculty then?
2: Oh, but even back then he yeah, was, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, m- most, as it turned out, most people, students who had strong professional ambitions at that time wanted to write their dissertations under his supervision.
1: What was he like he in, was in the classroom and, and as a mentor?
2: In the classroom, he was all business totally serious. He liked to elicit student participation in the classroom. He would, uh, he probably never lectured more than three or four or five minutes without asking someone a question and uh, going through the room that way. And it was, but his questions were always from the point of view of he had some work that he was doing, some papers he was writing or books he was writing. And he was reviewing his thinking, but his method of teaching was one where he never would talk about things that he was absolutely convinced were finished. Mm-hmm. All he wanted to talk about were things that were underway and in progress. And uh, he led us and our uh, our thinking about these things as vehicles, I think, often for enabling him to push his thoughts further.
1: Yeah, I, you tell a story, and if you like, tell it... Uh or I'm, I'll ask you to tell again here a story which I like a lot about Buchanan asking someone in class, uh, you, you had a paper assignment and someone asked Buchanan to elaborate on you know, what does he mean by the paper assignment and Buchanan shot back. no, <laughs> yeah.
2: well, that was me oh, in, oh. <laughs> in my uh, very first class with Buchanan when I went to graduate school there. and so It was September of 63 and I had his public finance class and he gave this, started off, he introduced the class by or the, the assignment by saying that he has heard it said that if a, I don't know if it was a, we call it a grasshopper or an ant or something, but if it were nine times as big as it currently is, it would, it would just crush under its own weight. And then he said, Well, you know, there's a problem of fiscal dimension here because governments have just exploded uh, from what they were in 1900. And so for next week, I want you all to write an essay on the problem of fiscal dimension. And I looked for a second, and I shot up my hand and said, Mr. Buchanan, can you please tell us what you're looking for a little bit? And he, without blinking, just shot back. Mr. Wagner, if I knew what I was looking for, I wouldn't care what you think about it. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I just felt like sneaking out of the classroom and never coming back. Yeah, Very but you,
1: it says a lot about the, the both the way Buch- Buchanan thought and the use that he had for students, you know, the respect that he had for students, to actually solicit genuinely good ideas from them. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about... Uh, some of the, uh, these other luminaries, who I, I admire a great deal, Ronald Coase, Nutter, Yeager. Uh, were, 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 were they close to each other? Was, was it a very collegial department? And did that collegiality rub off on students? Who else was popular with students other than Buchanan?
2: Well, all of those other faculty were, were popular, not so much as Buchanan, but uh, you know, Coase was someone who was wildly popular am- among the students. Uh, So he taught both history of thought, both semesters. He also taught a course on public utility economics. That was the time that Warren Nutter had just finished his book on the Soviet Union. And he taught the first semester micro-theory course, and then he taught a course on Soviet economic growth. And his courses were also popular. He was an interesting, challenging teacher, as they all were. And you had,
1: uh, both in your own cohort and cohorts just before you and after you at UVA, some prominent uh, st- people, t- people who are prominent today who were students back then, thinking of Bob Tolleson and uh, Mark Pauly and uh, those. Do uh, you have any recollections of, that you'd like to share with us of some of those characters?
2: Yeah, actually, Tolleson came at the end of my mm-hmm. stay there, the... People who were senior to me when I arrived there were Charlie Getz and Charlie Plott yeah. were both on the faculty. John Moore came the same year I did. Uh, people like Tom Willett, uh, Mark Pauley came the year after I did. Then Bob Tollison came the year after that. Uh, I didn't really know Bob Tollison at that time, although he told me he had met me, but I didn't realize it because he came in the spring of 66 when I was finishing my dissertation he came looking for housing to move into and so a real estate agent brought him by or I was working my dissertation and Bob told me the story later he said that I just wasn't at all friendly to him I opened the door showed him in and went right back and <laughs> went to work and Bob knew I was an economic student but I didn't know anything about him yeah. and then Bob told me later, said, well, I didn't like you, but then as I was walked back into the kitchen where you were working, I saw you had a bottle of gin and a bottle of bourbon on the countertop there, and I asked about that, and I said, oh, yeah, my wife gets home from work about 6, and we'll have something to drink then, yeah. and then he said to himself, well, I'm sure I could get to like him after after he's finished the dissertation, which is probably true because we were good fi- friends after that.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and later colleagues. Colleagues, yeah. co-authors as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: So shifting gears,
1: shifting gears a bit, I mentioned in, in the introduction the connection between Austrian economics and public choice. Uh, I'm not sure how natural a connection it is, but certainly th- there is a connection, at least through Buchanan's own, own work. I know he was citing uh, human action in some of his earliest works on public finance. Um, so how did, do, do you have any uh, knowledge or insights into how or why Jim, unlike most economists of his generation, uh, grew favorable toward the Austrian tradition. He accepted it. He didn't buy into all of its premises uh, and tenets, but he was always very favorable to it. And by th- I think by the, by the 1970s, he had become a real champion of subjectivism and the Austrian approach. And I know you yourself are, can be described in, in that way as well. Uh, what what caused, what is it about Jim Buchanan that attracted him to Austrian economics, and how do you think it influenced his work?
2: Well, I think most importantly that the entire program in Charlottesville associated with the Thomas Jefferson Center for Studies in Political Economy. And at and that, that, time, that was
1: founded by Buchanan and Nutter, by right?
2: Buchanan and Nutter in '56, oh. But the original title was Studies in Political Economy and Social Philosophy. Now, uh, Buchanan, Nutter, and someone else who was important at the time, Rutledge Vining, were all students of Chicago, all of whom had very strong degrees of reverence for Frank Knight. And... Uh, Within that influence, that the the courses that were taught by those people, as well as by Leland Yeager, uh, we found in our reading lists and in conversations uh, references to Mises Hayek. It was as if all of these people were part of a big kind of family. That, as any family, there will be points of difference and so forth. But I think if you think of the uh, Thomas Jefferson Center, as really a program it was not a program in the spirit of twentieth century neoclassical economics at all. It was a program and that was really a continuation of perhaps the English classical political economy uh, that people like Lionel Robbins uh, wrote about. And it was in that kind of classical tradition where the focus within the classical tradition is economics is centered upon problems of human governance and living together whereas within the neoclassical tradition economics is centered on problems of resource allocation i think that makes a huge difference because resource allocation as your focus means you're referring to someone who allocates the resources whereas with human governance you're focused on the rules by which people can work together in ways that can can generate gains from trade while keeping down the potential for conflict among them. And so that's an approach to economics that naturally leads into uh, the political, the social and the moral philosophical uh, aspects of, of social science as against the very neg- the, the very narrow uh, scope of neoclassical economics. So that was all in play back then.
1: Did, was there a sense back <laughs> then that, that uh, what was happening at UVA <coughs> was significantly different from what was happening at, at uh, Chicago or certainly at the likes of Harvard and, and Princeton? Mm-hmm. I, 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 my guess now is if you reassemble those people together in 2016, uh, they would feel very different they would feel that what they're doing is very different. From what's being done in the mainstream of economics now. Was there that sense in, in uh, 1963, 64?
2: There was certainly a recognition, yes, that, the, that we were doing different things, but there was still, at that time, there was much more of a recognition still that we're all engaged in the same profession, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that uh, people who went through the Virginia program Got positions at various universities. Uh, had offers from other universities uh, that were all regarded as as standard economics programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but within those standard economics programs, sure, there was recognition that you're getting somewhat of a different-looking economist by getting someone from Virginia, but still an economist. Right. So,
1: um, yeah. Uh, Buchanan's first, or I think of his first major work is, is his work on public debt and, and, and uh, demolishing the myth that the debt is not a burden if it's held internally, if we owe it to ourselves. As we say, I know you, you worked on this with Jim as well um, a few years after he published his his book on, on the question. Uh, I've always assumed, I've never spoken to Jim about this, but I've always assumed that his really deep understanding of subjective, the subjective nature of cost. It p- came in part from the way he pondered the nature of the debt burden. Is that correct?
2: Well, the subjective quality of cost is certainly present mm-hmm. in talking about public debt in the way he did, which was he wanted to treat public debt within the lens of what you might call contract, that public debt didn't have any kind of different qualities from what personal debt had. When you talk about personal debt, you're talking about a relationship between a debtor and a creditor. And that is handled under the uh, auspices of private law. When you talk about public debt, uh, in Buchanan's mind, uh, what you're talking about is the same thing. Now you're talking about some people in their position as lenders or lending to other people as borrowers but there's an obligation created uh, that is the same sort of private debt the problems that come about is because when you have a government entering that transaction notions of obligation really uh, recede into the far background because uh, with public debt If a public debt is created today, people are not assigned explicit tax liabilities today to pay off that debt in the future, if they were. Public debt would be the same as private debt. And so Buchanan's own mentality thought about, well, there's no difference between people making promises, their capacities as members of a collectivity and people making their promises in the capacities of individual citizens but the Keynesian eruption uh, uh, inverted all that and created such sorts of fanatical notions as don't worry about it because we owe it to ourselves
1: yeah it's, it's kind of notion that that you know when you think when once you've absorbed Buchanan 's way of thinking about the matter it's just a, an absurd uh, notion but it's still widely believed and trumpeted by a lot of prominent economists. It's it's, it's, it's it's very depressing and I think this fundamental message of Jim's remains so elusive.
2: Oh well, it is in fact a an Italian colleague of mine Giuseppe Giuseppe and I, I spent this last part of the summer in Rome, have just finished a book on debt. The title of the book is Public Debt Subtitle is An Illusion of democratic political economy. The reason we call it an illusion is precisely because in people's minds when they think of debt they think of credit contracts, of a relationship between a borrower and a lender. Mm -hmm. Now that relationship is always a specific obligation of one person to another and that then has to be discharged or defaulted. But when you get to public debt uh, there is no entity that's indebted that's that's a fiction that what public debt means is some people are using the powers of government to to impose taxes with promises to pay in the future on people who did not agree to those things that uh, on the one hand you have people in the position, position as borrowers who willingly buy government bonds but then when you get to the case of the people's taxpayers many of those are not willing creditors, they didn't voluntarily lend or or borrow but are forced uh, debtors and so that creates a wholly different kind of relationship and so that means public debt is intimately involved in things like rent seeking, rent extraction and these kinds of things and is very far removed from any kind of notion of of contract
1: yeah it's 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 uh, uh, it's easy easier to spend other people's money and to spend it carelessly uh, than it is to spend your own money uh, and that's especially true if the other people whose money you're spending are not yet born in a lot of cases exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm glad you brought up uh, your work I'm eager to read that book by the way the first I remember the first book of yours the first work of anything that you did that I read was your 1977 book with Jim, Democracy in Deficit. Uh, it did come out in 77, right? It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that book w- was on uh, uh, what was then underappreciated fault in Keynesian economics, and that is the, the failure of Keynesian economics to properly consider the political environment under which fiscal decisions are made. And... Uh, uh, what was the reaction to that book? My sense is that it did not have the impact that it deserves, that it still deserves. It's still largely, I believe, ignored by the mainstream uh, uh, members of the profession, uh, and yet its it, it'll be 40 years old next year.
2: Yes, that's something we were disappointed in the reception. We had some good reviews on it, but also a lot of, people just ignored it and I think the reason in in part has to do with how it is that people think about economics what does it uh, mean to be an economist how do you do economics what is economics useful for Mm -hmm. that uh, I think Buchanan and I and I think us here have a view that the fundamental use of economics is to understand better how the world works it's not an engineering discipline. We're not out there trying to uh, force people to do this or that or instruct them how to, how to live better. That, uh, that's the economics as public policy. But now, uh, for, for economists who think that what economics is fundamentally about is telling people what kinds of so-called policy measures should be enacted, then you don't want to have an analysis that says that policymakers or so-called policymakers are going to follow their own logic, their own interests. That's what Democracy and Deficit said. It says right. it. Policy resp- has a rhyme and reason to it. There's an economic logic to policy that poli- so-called policymakers are going to take Least cost courses of action; they're going to take most beneficial for them courses of action, mm-hmm. and that has little of anything to do with the usual kinds of Keynesian presumptions about using the powers of the purse, so-called, to make life better. Yeah. So, so,
1: e- so even if, even if uh, we would to grant, for sake of argument, that Keynes's narrow technical economics is correct. Um, what you and Jim were said in that book is that we can't rely upon politicians to act in accordance with the uh, Keynesian recipe for how that economics should be applied.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. We accepted the Keynesian recipe, and that was one of the uh, points that some of – the people who normally would have liked the argument didn't like about the book, that they yeah, yeah. chided us because we accepted Keynes, but yeah. we only accepted Keynes just to illustrate the uh, foolishness of, of the presumptions there. Yeah,
1: yeah. So what... what uh, um, you, You've been around public choice now for more than 50 years. Uh, what do you believe are the important still unans the most important still unanswered questions that you would like young scholars to work on or or questions uh, that you are frustrated that people haven't yet tackled with sufficient vigor.
2: well what I've been increasingly attracted to is what I've been referring to as entangled political economy over the past several years and this goes back uh, to pre Charlottesville days really if you say that the program in Charlottesville at that time that Buchanan and Nutter established was really trying to transcend the neoclassical narrowing of economics that had been taking place and reach back to the broader context of economics and political economy uh, that was carried forward in the English classical tradition that, that's what I think I'm doing with entangled political economy, is it says that how do you do public choice in an open-ended universe where people are creative, inventive, that politics, you, you treat politics as one kind of business, Commerce is another type of business. If you go down that road,
1: so you're saying that, that's not the way. That's not d- the way to go.
2: That is the way yeah. that I've been taking it. Is that means it may not be a good way. I think the if you if we go back to a, I think a reasonable view of the constitutional erosion that has taken place in this country over the uh, past century or so. Uh, you started off say in the around 1800 with a basic kind of a of liberty where uh, governments were very small. Sure, uh, Jonathan Hughes had a beautiful little book called The Governmental Habit that governments are always there but the reach was small. Uh, Most uh, uh, private ordering was dominant, public ordering was small and as you move forward you find Increasingly, especially over the last three quarters of a century or so, the expansion of public ordering everywhere. There's there's very little uh, that is free of the presence of public ordering, and the same thing for public expenditure. But all that in indicates entanglement. Uh, Jane Jacobs wrote a masterful little book called Systems of Survival. Yeah, that's good. And in that book, her central theme was that well-working societies require a tenuous or perilous balance between two types of activities which she called guardian and commercial and so long as each of the conveyors of those activities uh, kept within their domains things would go well problems arose increasingly what she called monstrous moral hybrids when those domains penetrated to one another, and what I'm, you know, what these ideas about entangled political economy simply So that's are, the entanglement. These that's two the entanglement. I- they they come together, and what the entanglement idea is, is fundamentally just like Jonathan Hughes, that you really can't have them totally separate. You can do as best you can. But we've gone very much and are going very much in the opposite direction of bringing these things ever more uh, closely uh, together. And so increasingly you find that uh, business becomes politics, politics becomes business. Like you take such a simple thing, going back to this financial crisis, that uh, there is no such thing as private ordering and real estate transactions and lending transactions. If you're a commercial lender, you have various kinds of regulations regarding... Uh, what kinds of loans you have to give, to what extent, to how much, uh, by gender, by race, by income, and all these kinds of things, which means that uh, the uh, uh, commercial loan business is very much an entangled mixture of politics and commerce. And that uh, creates terrible kinds of, of miscalculations because you have the fundamental problem of effectively two sets of people speaking different dialects of a language because you have commercial people who by and large have capital invested in their business who speak a language of profit and loss mm-hmm. then you have political uh, entities who don't have capital invented invested in their uh, businesses don't speak a language of profit and loss directly but still do and so that's where you get uh, such things as financial regulators telling uh, uh, businesses what kinds of portfolios they have to have because they have a political clientele uh, to whom they have to uh, uh, appease. And then the commercial lenders have to conform to some extent to those political requirements as a side condition for doing their ordinary business. And that creates this really jumbled, messed up kind of system we have.
1: And doesn't it over time also tend to attract into the commercial sector people who are more adept at appeasing uh, or appealing to the politicians and squeezes out of the commercial sector, people who are not so good at that, and perhaps making things only worse.
2: I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's a very uh, potentially wonderful uh, researchable project to do also. And I would say in this respect, going back, you mentioned Warren Nutter a long time ago, and it... uh, Reminds me in this respect that one of see, Nutter in his work on the Soviet Union was the first person back then to say the Soviet Union wasn't doing so good at all. That right. was grossly overestimated.
1: And he was derided for that.
2: Wasn't he was he? derided for that. Yeah. And the reason he was derided was if you look at his Soviet growth book, uh, he, uh, he characterized the entire period of the Soviet. Uh, since the soviet revolution whereas most of the western economists would throw out years of famine and years <laughs> of war and so forth and what was left yeah. and nutters argument there i think was a kind of a comparative systems argument mm-hmm. he says a soviet style planning system requires famines it requires exterminations it requires concentration camps because that's what you have to have to keep the rest of the population in line And so you can't just throw out those years because that's part of what enables the system to work.
1: Right, right.
2: And it's the same thing we're talking about now. That's what I'm trying to do with this entanglement is that we are generating a system of of control. We've moved greatly from what you might call a constitutional liberty into a constitutional control. And each of these systems has its own internally generated performance properties.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot to make a prediction, and I know this is not your forte, but but, let me ask you, put it this way, can this entanglement be undone? I know, know of course, it can be undone, but given political realities, given human nature, given where we are and given the momentum, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic that it will be undone?
2: I think of myself neither as an optimist or as a pessimist but as a realist now what does it mean to be a realist in this yeah. case I I also have a you know, a naturally optimistic side I, I think it I think it can be undone I don't think it can be undone by a group of people sitting together applying logic to a case right. that's where I'm very much a believer that it's sentiments that lead reason to, to think about problems. And I think, uh, I think it's, see, see, one of the, I think, one of the, uh, the greatest gift our parents give to each of us is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we're given a life to lead. And what do we make of it? Well, within a kind of a system of free enterprise, what we make of it is for us to determine and to live out or if we get into deeply controlled collectivist systems we lose the responsibility for leading our own lives and I think somehow I have the belief that as people come increasingly to say I just want to live I don't want to be like a cow or a steer who's just being fatted up uh, and I I think there is a path to get there Uh, but I, I, it's not easy, yeah. I don't think.
1: Uh, you, the, the, your, your steer or cow analogy reminds me of, of one of Jim's most famous essays and a, and a famous line from that, his Natural and Artifactual Man essay, where he repeats twice mm-hmm. that man wants freedom to become the man he wants to become, which is which, which a nice way uh, uh, or a nice example of showing Jim's understanding that society is open-ended or that society should be open-ended, and that's that is the best society—one that is open-ended, one that uh, just fattens us up like cows. Even if, in some sense, it maximizes our utility uh, in some neoclassical sense, that's not really what freedom is about. It's not really what what or what economics should be focused on. It should be focused on uh, the, uh, the the the. Human beings, as we are, we want to become. We don't just want to be maximized, uh, and also focus on the institutions that allow that freedom to flourish, rather than the control to be handed to someone else. Because it it, it it is probably the case that if you focus on control, um, it's, it's a short step from that focus to recognize. Well, let's to recognize. Well, let's put experts in charge. Let, let's mm-hmm. let's we, we're all cows. We're all sheep. Let's have a shepherd or a, a, a cowboy uh, s- you know, sit in some big government building and, 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 and maximize force. And it'll make, it'll make our life better. Uh, and But that's not really what living a truly human life mm-hmm. ought to be. I know that toward the very end of his life, uh, I, I think Jim became pessimistic on this front. Because as you know, he was working on this topic that he called parentalism. And his concern was that. Uh, uh, so not not paternalism, not that you know the elites want to impose their will on the masses, but parentalism that the masses demand from the elites direction on how to live because it makes them it makes their lives it makes them seem less uh, um, uh, less unsafe, less less uh, troublesome to have someone else tell you what to do. Um, what we we're, we're, we're approaching the end of our time here. What uh, what advice do you have for young scholars today who are interested in pursuing this, this broad political economy, Austrian slash Virginia school slash public choice research program?
2: I would say that they should pursue their interest as fully as they uh, choose to because there are, I think, growing amounts, growing degrees of interest in the intersections among economics, philosophy, law, politics. I have a feeling that the scholarly world, the old-time scholarly world of narrow disciplines is going to be eroding in various ways. And so I think the for instance, here I think this Hayek program on here at George th- Mason, yeah. at George Mason on philosophy, politics, and economics. Uh, one of the things I really am extremely enthused about it is I find it that identification of a student of philosophy, politics, and economics as really liberating mm-hmm. compared to an identification with a very narrow kind of of economism that is practiced in in most economics programs, and I I, th- I think. Uh, my belief is that we're at the forefront of a future wave in terms of of how scholarship is going to unfold because there is both a recognition that the idea of economizing action is one of those eternal verities in life mm-hmm. but the context in which it plays out is, is huge, wide-ranging and uh, and, and incorporates material from all these other disciplines, you can take some principles of economizing action, bring it to bear into political contexts, anthropological, historical, you, you, you name it. There are, are uh, opportunities throughout the uh, humane studies. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you say that the, uh, referring to the Institute of Humane Studies here at Mason, that you could say that, uh, uh, I think economics as pursued within the Hayek program, is really you might say a core of the whole broad range of the humane studies yes it is, and yeah. so uh people who have those interests uh i think uh you know we're in a wonderful position uh but uh always it requires hard charging uh, people to carry those visions forward
1: yeah, and we have fortunately we have some of those here you're mm-hmm. you're still a hard charging Individual, I know Tyler Cowan describes GMU Economics. Maybe other people do, but I I, I think of Tyler as saying this: that GMU Econ is unique because we we are a book-oriented uh, group as opposed to an articles-oriented group. And I, th- I think it's accurate to a large degree. I mean, people at Harvard and Princeton they write books, but their whole focus is on on articles. They measure their professional achievements by how many articles they have in the American economic Review or the Journal of political economy and while we value those contributions as well it, it, it does seem like we focus we GMU econ masonomist as Arnold mm-hmm. Kling says we uh, we focus more in the, on the on the on the broader scholarship the philosophy politics and economics and that's that's done more in 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 book form in not just in short little studies that make a Particular specific point almost as if they're addressed to engineers but in books that are addressed to thinkers and and and
2: scholars. I think that's right and Tyler's right about this because the kind of material that is of interest to many people here at Mason uh, transcend typically the boundaries of interest mm-hmm. that are confined in most economics journals mm-hmm. and even when you find a economists writing in economics journals here in many cases they're on more multidisciplinary kinds of journals and i think that's a a natural feature of the ppe kind of interest exhibited here
1: yeah i agree well dick it's been great talking with you thank you for oh. thank you for uh, joining us to talk about uh, public choice the history and uh, ppe
2: Oh, well, it's good to do that and it's been a very quick moving period of time
1: <laughs> thanks